Good morning. You're all very welcome. We're very happy to have you here. And thank you, Ernie and the gang, for that wonderful time of worship. That was beautiful. Um, a few new songs, I hope, for the future for us. So we're in Galatians chapter 2 this morning, verses uh, 15 to 21. If you weren't here last week, um, we had gotten to the stage in Galatians where a conflict had arisen in the church of Galatia. Well, uh, well of the church of Antioch, to be more specifically. Sometime we know after the Apostle Paul and Barnabas and uh, Titus left the city of Jerusalem with their gift, we learned that the Apostle Peter, he traveled down to Antioch, and for a time things were well. They were having a feast, they were eating together, they were having fellowship. Remember, Peter was the man who gave Paul the right hand of fellowship, who sent him off to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. They agreed with his, his message that salvation comes through faith in Jesus and not through works of the law. Peter was the man who ushered, helped usher in not only the, the gospel to the Jews at Pentecost, but also to the Gentiles in the house of uh, with Cornelius, the Praetorian. And so Peter knew himself that the grace of God was found not through what we do, but what Christ has done for us. And yet when Paul arrived at Antioch, a trouble had arisen. You recall that at one point, Peter, he was eating, partaking of food with the Gentiles and taking the Lord's Supper together. Um, but at some point, men from James, the circumcision party, came into the feast and Peter withdrew from all of the Gentiles. And in Peter's withdrawal from the Gentiles with the circumcision party, he was communicating, guys, you aren't really like us. You are Gentiles, you do not have the law, and therefore you really do not have God fully yet. And what happened essentially was as Peter acted in a hip hypocritical way, we see that the Jews in Antioch followed suit, including Barnabas, who was one of their teachers. And so we have the Gentiles at one side abandoned by their brothers. We have the Jews at the other side acting hypocritically. And in the middle of this law, we have the Apostle Paul. And so Paul, in the middle of this feast, stands up and asks Peter a question. Peter, how come you, a Jew, he says it in 14, actually, we can just read it together. He says, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? And so as we begin in verse 15 of our text this morning, Paul is continuing on this train of thought now and this conflict and this argument he's going to make of where we find that rest for our souls. And he says in verse 15, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. So then after Paul uh, confronting Peter with this question, you know, why are you acting so hypocritically, Peter? You're a Jew and you live like a Gentile. How can you force these Gentiles to live like Jews? Paul now goes on to remind Peter of their common uh, heritage and how ultimately, despite the fact that they are blessed as being part of the Hebrew nation, they are Jews, they have the law, they have the covenants, they are part of the people of God. They have come to the realization that just like Gentiles, they need to find grace through faith in Jesus. Paul says in verse 15 that both he and Peter were Jews by birth and not Gentiles. Now, we've mentioned a few times, again, a Gentile is someone who was not born into the family of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But Paul here uses a, a pretty interesting phrase. He doesn't just say Gentiles. He says Gentile sinners. And this is how the, views, the, the, the Jews rather, viewed the Gentiles that they were people who were defined ultimately by sin. And they were defined this way because they did not have the law of God. 
They were, as Paul describes in Ephesians 2.12, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and being without God in the world. And so because Gentiles were outside of the covenant, because they did not have the law, they had no means that they could by themselves draw close to God and worship Yahweh. They were left in a state of sin. Now we, we use the word sin very often and we can hear it in, in, in media and culture or so much, we kind of miss the impact of this word. But for the Jews, the word for sin was a word called kata. And kata literally meant to miss the mark. So I'm going to use an imperfect analogy. Imagine a dartboard, if you will. You, know, you have a dartboard, you have 1 to 20, and in the center of a dartboard, you have a little red circle, which is the bullseye. That is the perfect shot, right? That is the standard that we must reach. In this analogy, let's say it's God's standard. Now, we know the Jews, they were not perfect. We have an entire book called the Old Testament that shows us their, their failures and their struggles in their relationship with God. But even though they were perfect, they had the law and the covenants. So when they messed up, when they missed the mark, when they hit somewhere else on the board, they had the means by which they could be made right with God. They had provision, they had sacrifice, they had a covenant of faith with the Lord. But the Gentiles, they weren't even close. They could not aim for that board if they wanted to. Theirs was an existence outside of fellowship with God. And so Paul says, Peter, we're not like that. And yet, despite the blessings that we have as Jews, you know, Peter, you and I, we have come to realize that the law cannot save us. One cannot be justified by works of the law. He says in verse 16, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. I want to spend a bit of time this morning counting down on those two verses. Paul says that faith in the law cannot save us. Religious rules will not allow you and me to stand before God in our own merit. It's impossible. Paul says if that day as Jews, and by extension we as Gentiles, were try, try to justify ourselves by works of the law, by keeping the Old Testament commandments, by being circumcised if you're a lad, by not eating certain animals, by observing the different feasts, we will fail. We will not be justified by works of the law. And I think, I think it begs the question, why? Why won't we be justified? And it's because God's law is not meant to save you from your sin. That was never its purpose. Their law has many good purposes, but putting you in a right standing before God is not one of them. So if that's not what the law is for, and this seems to be the problem with these Jews here, they were trying to justify themselves, be made right with God by the law, we ask, well, what was the law actually for? So the scriptures, they do teach um, many things about the law, but two things I think are relevant this morning are this. Number one, the law points us to the beauty and the perfection of our God. Listen to the words of the psalmist. You can turn there if you want, but Psalm 19, verses 7 to 11. Uh, you probably know this psalm very well. But in this psalm, the, 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 the psalmist, David, he declares the beauty and the wonder of God's law. He says, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. 
The testimony of the Lord is pure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the hearts. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. And so King David had quite a high view of the word of the Lord. God's law reveals something, not just about his standards, but about who he is. When we see God telling us to do certain things and not to do other things, it shows us what God cares about, what his priorities are, what he values, and what he says is good. When we study the law in the right way, what we see is God has a heart towards humanity, that God loves his creation so much. The law is about preserving humanity and benefiting humanity, you know, honoring the, the image of God that is within us. And it reveals to us how good God truly is. If this is his standard, if his law is perfect and good and beautiful and sweet, then all those things are true of God as well. And there is great joy when we study the law in the right way. But there is a side of the law that is not so sweet. When we look at the law, not only do we see how great and high and wonderful our God is, we see how much we fall short in comparison, don't we? You know, the law, though it was given to Israel, we should never think that it was given to people who were righteous. Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 1, in fact, it was not the righteous that were given the law, but the law was given for sinners, for those who want to rebel. Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8, we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. When we read the law, we need to realize it is given to people who, at our core, there is something that has gone wrong. God's law reveals to us our, our gift, our, our guilt, rather, it shows, you know, we cannot ever hope to keep it by ourselves. I think the fact that we violate the law and the law was given as something to restrain us from doing what we should not do, again, reveals something about our hearts, that our hearts are prone to go against the Lord and by extension to go against humanity. A number of years ago, we had a Bible school here in the church and it was wonderful. We had students come from America and from Europe and we got to just go through books in the Bible and just teach them for hours on end. It was a wonderful time. And I had the opportunity one year uh, to preach, to teach rather, through my, uh, my favorite book in the Old Testament, Leviticus. I love Leviticus. And when we got to chapter 19, we get to the bit about God's command to love our neighbors. You, you, you would like think it should go without saying that we should love our neighbors, but God has to tell us to love our neighbors and to tell us how. And there's always a verse in there that kind of got me, that kind of like it makes me stop and really just think about myself whenever I read it. It's Leviticus 19:14. The Lord says there, you shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind, but you shall fear your God, I am the Lord. And like think about that for a second. 
God has to tell us not to trip off blind people. Like, does that not tell us something about the conditions of the human heart that we have this impulse to not only, you know, tear down those who are well-bodied and able, but we want to take advantage and abuse those who are helpless. And so the law can only really show us our guilt if we look at it outside of Christ. It shows us, you know, if we want to try and justify ourselves by keeping these rules, we've already failed. Instead, Paul says we need to be justified by faith in Jesus Christ. That's what he says in verse 16. We're not justified by the law, but we are justified by our faith in Christ. What is justification and what is faith? Justification in the simplest form is being put in a right standing before God. It means that we are declared to be what we are meant to be. You see, we are meant to be in a relationship with the Lord. That's why God created us. He created Adam and Eve to know him, to walk with him in the garden. God created you and me so that we would know him. But our sin cuts us off from his presence, and so we need to be brought back into the state that we are meant to be in. And the scriptures teach we get to this place through faith in Jesus Christ. It has nothing to do with us. It's not about our faith and how much faith we have. It has everything to do with Jesus. You know, it isn't the volume. It's not like you have to like, get a certain amount of faith in God to be saved. It's not the measure of your faith. It's where you're putting your faith. If you are putting your faith in Jesus, friends, you know, whether not just that like, initial moment of conversion, but if we are walking with Christ, trusting in Christ, you know, staying at that place on the cross, we will stand in God's presence guiltless. doesn't matter what you've done. doesn't matter what you're doing, what your life is like right now. You can stand before him clean when our faith is in Christ. And Paul says both he and Peter came to that conclusion that the law would not justify them and instead they could only be justified by trusting in Jesus alone. They both arrived at the same destination. But what's interesting about these two people is they arrived in different ways. Paul and Peter had two very different journeys to bring them to the cross. Both men, yes, we know they were brought up in the Jewish tradition. They were taught to revere the law of Moses. And they were similar in many ways, but the way they came to Christ could not have been any different. Paul was like radically converted in this moment where he meets Jesus on the road to Damascus. And then over the course of a few days... He goes from a man who is persecuting the church to a man who is preaching the gospel, to a man who denied who Jesus was, to someone who embraced and worshipped Jesus for who he was. But Peter, Peter had a bit of a different route, didn't he? He had a bit of a longer walk to come to Christ. The gospels show us that Peter's journey with Jesus happened over a number of years. And it was long, and there were hiccups along the way. There were times when Peter fell flat in his face and he had to get picked back up by Christ. But both he and Paul arrived at the same destination. They arrived at the cross, you know, at the place where there is even ground, where all men and women must come and acknowledge Jesus. And despite what's happening in Antioch and Galatians 2, Paul says, you know, we've both come to that conclusion, Peter, that Jesus is the way we come to God. And each and every one of us here today, despite the road we may have traveled, if we want to be justified with God, if we want to be able to stand in his presence, if we want to know him and to worship him, 
we must all arrive to that same destination. We must come to the cross of Christ. We must realize who he is, what he has done for us, the price he has paid. And when we make that decision, Jesus, I'm going to trust in you, and I'm going to walk with you. You have done it all. I could not do it myself. Therefore, I place my faith in you, in Christ alone, and I walk with you. And that is the only means by which we could ever know God. And here's the thing about knowing God. God wants you to know him. God wants us to know him. Which is amazing. The creator of all things desires to know you. You know, when I was younger, I thought God was very far off. Um, Rightfully so, you know, I knew he was angry at my sin when I wasn't a Christian, but I missed the love of God. I had no idea of the compassion of God. I had no idea that there was a God who sent his son to die on a cross to, so that I could have eternal life, so I could know him. And yet, isn't that exactly the, the character God describes himself as in the scriptures? He says, he is the Lord, the Lord, merciful and gracious, full of compassion, abounding in steadfast love, forgiving, you know, transgression and sin, and iniquity. The gospel shows us our God is a God of love and that Jesus Christ came to save sinners and to give us eternal life. And Peter and the Jews were in this moment just saying, it's not enough. I have to do something to know God rather than God doing it all so that I can know him instead. And you can either try and get eternal life by yourself and fall flat on your face by justifying yourself through the law, or you can come to Christ and what he has done, you know, that he came to give life eternal. And here's the thing with eternal life, if we can talk about eternal life for a moment. Again, it's funny how culture kind of shapes how we think about things like heaven and the afterlife and knowing God, but you know, again, like the picture of heaven as a child for me was sitting on a cloud all day just for eternity, just being there. But that's not eternal life. Eternal life is not just sitting in the heavens for eternity. Eternal life is this. Jesus says in John 17, eternal life is that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. See, eternal life isn't just living forever. It's knowing God forever. It's the very purpose Jesus came. We would know him. I love what he says in the Gospel of John. We were praying on Thursday night. And just these verses, they came to me from Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 17. He says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their words, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you have sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you and these know you that you have sent me. I may know to them your name and I will continue to make it known to the love at which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. I love this, the unity Christ emphasizes in that prayer. Not just our unity as brothers and sisters, but our union with God, that we get to know him and experience him and be part of that love that he has for Christ. 
I love it. You know, God sent his son so that we would know him. Jesus died for you that you would know him. We have been given the Holy Spirit so that we would know him. And God knows everything about you. And the question is, do you want to know him? And maybe that's a good point to stop and ask that question. Do we really want to know God? Have we placed our faith in him? Are you in this room this morning and maybe you don't know, are you, are you born again? Do you have eternal life? And if the question, answer to that question is no, or maybe I'm not really sure, I haven't thought about it, I've always just assumed it, then we need to take this into consideration that God wants you to know him and you need to call upon his name. Jesus is calling sinners to come home. And now is the day. Now is the time to get right with the Lord. And again, what does the scripture promise? If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It is a promise. It is a guarantee. It is God's word and God does not break his word. But if you do know him, if he is yours and you are his, then I was asked, similar to the question we've been asking the last few weeks, I think it's going to come up again and again in Galatians, is are we being consistent to what we profess to be true? Peter wasn't being consistent here in Galatians 2. Paul says he was acting the hypocrite. He knew he was justified by his faith, and yet his actions were denying the gospel. And what was his crime again? He was placing a burden on other people, and therefore a burden also on himself to be saved. That there was something that they had to do to be Christians, that Jesus was not enough. It was all about what he did for God rather than what God did for him. And so I think the scripture constantly calls us to ask ourselves, you know, what is our relationship with the Lord like right now? And what is it being based upon? You know, if someone asks you, you're a Christian, is it going to be because I do this or I don't do this? Or if someone asks you, are you a Christian, is it because of who you know? If you're in a place this morning, and I, I fall into this so often where I feel like if I've messed up, if I haven't done enough, if I've sinned too much this week, I have to try and work my way back to God. If that's you this morning, then the scripture says, you know, don't try and justify yourself by works, but draw near to God by faith. Daughter of Hebrews says that we can draw near to God by faith through the blood of Christ. He says this in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 22 and 21. Since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who is promised is faithful. Paul knew the faithfulness of God, and he was happy to draw near by faith and not by himself. But as we move on into this, in verses 17 and 19, a question comes on, perhaps, well, Paul answers a question that's not asked, really, by the crowds, but would have more, most likely arisen from the circumcision party. If faith in Christ leads you to walking away from the law of God, as a means of justification, then is Jesus leading us away into sin because he leads us away from having to live a life defined by the standards of the law. He says in verse 17, but if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, 
Is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. And so the answer is no. Christ does not lead you into sin. But instead, what we see is, you know, when we move away from the law of God and move to the Lord through Jesus, we actually get to begin living for God for real. Instead of, you know, turning to Christ, bringing about sin, Paul says that if he and Peter were to turn back to the law as a means of justification after knowing Jesus and what he is, that would be the sin. He says in verse 18, if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. You see, to turn back to the law is to look upon the work of Jesus and say, Jesus, no thank you, I have a better way. What a foolish place that would be for any person to find themselves in. After finding the grace of God, knowing that we have been bought by the blood of the Lamb, to say, Jesus, I have a better way, and go back to the law. It's foolish. And the author of Hebrews, and Hebrews was written by a Christian to, to a group of Jewish Christians who were being tempted to leave Jesus and go back to the law because of hardship and persecution. He says, if you return to the law, there will be only ruin. Hebrews 10.28 says, anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay and again, the Lord will judge his people. We cannot go back to the law. We cannot, after knowing Christ, say, it's about me and what I have to do to get right with him. Jesus has come and fulfilled the law. He has put an end to it. It is the time of a new wineskin. God has set us free. What does it say in Galatians 5.1? For freedom, Christ has set you free. Stand firm and do not submit yourselves again to a yoke of slavery. Do not submit yourself again to the law. We cannot do this. And Paul says in verse 19 that he and we, by extension, we can't return to the law truly because we don't have any like, bondage under it anymore. We do not relate to the law in the same way. In verse 19, he says, For through the law, I die to the law so that I might live to God. Paul says here that in a sense, the law has, has killed him. He is dead to it. Through the law, he died to the law, he says. You see, again, the law only showed Paul his shortcoming. The law revealed his sin. The law showed that there is something in him that I just wanted to break the rules. And Paul says this death was necessary. Because, you know, with his hope in the law gone, with no means of saving himself, Paul could turn to the one who truly saves he was able to turn to Jesus and he says, I, you know, because I died to the law, I can now live to God. And Paul says something very similar in Romans chapter 7. In Romans 7 verse 4, he says, Likewise, my brothers, you also, Christians, we have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that we may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we are living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. Paul's saying before we knew Christ, all the law really did for us was we would see it and the sin in us would be aroused by it and want to break the rules. 
He says, and now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we could serve in the new way of the spirits and not in the old way of the written code. What does Paul say here? He says in Romans 7 that when we trust in Christ, for those of us who have trusted in Jesus, we are living for God in a different way. We no longer relate to the law in the same way anymore. The law only had the power to make us want to sin more. But now that we're no longer under it, now that we're no longer in bondage to it, we get to live for God in a new and exciting way. We get to live through the power of his spirits. See, in the new covenant, we know that Jesus has given each and every one of us here who believes in his name, the Holy Spirit. And he is the one who leads us and guides us beyond the law into righteousness. And so we don't need the law to restrain us from doing evil like the Jews did. Instead, we have been given the means, guys, not only to walk away from evil, to, to, to resist it, but we have been given the power to live in a way that truly pleases God. We have been given the Spirit. We have been given the Holy Spirit. And as we follow his leading, we bear fruits. Galatians 5 says we will not only not do the bad things our flesh wanted us to do in the past, but we will bear fruit that brings glory to God. In Galatians 5 it says the fruit of the Spirit is what? It's love, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And against these things there is no law. The Holy Spirit leads us into a place where we don't have to be told what not to do. He shows us what we get to do. And it's beautiful. It's a beautiful thing. The Holy Spirit, he does what the law cannot do. He changes us. He makes us like Christ. And all we have to do is keep in step with him, he says. It's to follow him in that relationship. And as we seek the Holy Spirit, as we follow his leading, as we get in the scriptures, as we look at the beauty of Christ, we are transformed. We have been given something that the dead letters could not ever do. And so Paul says, I have died to the law and I now live to Christ. But as we get to our last two verses, we might ask the question, well, Paul, you're, you're clearly alive. You're writing this letter to us. You're speaking in Antioch. When did you die, Paul? When did we die? Well, he says it in verses 20 and 21. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were true to law, then Christ died for no purpose. Paul says he died to the law when Jesus paid the price for his sin on the cross. You see, on the cross, Jesus, having lived a perfect life, a life we could not live, he perfectly fulfilled the law. He kept it. And so the power of it died with him. Paul died to the law when Christ died for him. But just as Christ has been raised from the dead and is alive forevermore, Paul and all of us, we are invited to bring our sin and the power of the law to Christ and to leave it there with him. And he gives us instead his righteousness and his everlasting life. And so Paul could say that he was crucified with Christ. And because he was crucified with Christ in his death, he was raised with Christ in his life and he now lives for him. 
He says he has been given a new life, everlasting life that goes beyond this mortal frame that we share. And if Paul has been given new life through the power of God, through the work of the Holy Spirit, through, 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 through his faith in Jesus alone, he has to stay in that place. And he says it there, doesn't he? You know, the life I now live in the flesh, he doesn't live it by his power. He says, I live it by faith in the, love, in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul knew that once he turned to Christ, he could not turn back to the law for power, for sanctification, and for change. See, we are not meant to live lives that please God by ourselves. We cannot, we know this, please God by ourselves. We cannot be sanctified by ourselves. We can change all the external things around us, yes, but inside here will not change without the power of God. We need that power. But again, we need to remember we have that power. When we turn to Christ, we were given that power through the Holy Spirit. And Paul says in Galatians 3, having begun in the Spirit, are you going to turn to the flesh? Are you going to be perfected in your flesh by your own power, by your own strength? No, we must walk by the Spirit. We must continue by the Spirit. Paul knew the foundation need to be kept, that his life was built upon Christ and his word, and not by his works. And that's amazing when you think of like the contrast of Paul's former life. Paul as a Pharisee, it was all about what he had to do, the rules he had to keep. It was his efforts. And again, this is what the religion of man does. It says that you have to do something for God. You have to trust in yourself. And that's never going to give you rest because it's never going to be enough. But guys, there is a better way. Paul says his life in the flesh was now lived by faith in what Jesus had done for him, not what he did for Jesus. And so there should be a very obvious answer. What did Jesus do for Paul? Paul says, you know, he loved him and gave himself for him. Paul, in his life of faith for Christ, is constantly looking back to the great expression of God's love for him, Jesus crucified on a cross. Jesus dying on a cross. And Paul, he would continue to that, wouldn't he, throughout his entire life. You read his letters, he is in love with Jesus and the fact that Jesus died for him. It is a thing that empowers him. And he declares it over and over. God has shown his love for you by sending his son to die for you. Paul says in Romans 5, 6, while we were weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. He says, you know, God showed his love for us so that while we are still sinners, Christ died for us. And so, you know, if you ever need to know, does God love you? Just look at the cross of Christ and you will have your answer. Paul knew the love of Jesus and Paul was happy to stay in that place, to rest in the grace of God. But he says, Peter and the Jews at Antioch, they were not doing that now. By separating themselves from their brothers and sisters, their Gentile brothers and sisters, by laying this requirement of circumcision upon them, they're saying that needed to be done for them to be saved. Again, as we learned, the implication is Jesus isn't enough if that's how we live. If we say we have to do some kind of external work to have justification for God, we are saying Jesus was not enough. But as Paul saying in the very last verse, he does not nullify the grace of God. Because if we are justified by the law, then what did Christ die for? Nothing. If we could be saved by what we do, then Jesus' death was nothing but a terrible tragedy that should not have happened. 
but the law cannot save us. And the scriptures and the gospel teaches us that Jesus was the only way. Think of the garden of Gethsemane. Jesus is final on earth. He's praying to the Father, Lord, you know, if there is any other way, you know, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me. But nevertheless, not my will, Father, but your will be done. Jesus prayed, Lord, if there is another way for mankind to be saved, for this to be done, let it happen. And what was his answer? What was the response? It was, it was silence. God did not give Jesus another way. And so Jesus goes to the cross. He dies in our place for our sin. He is wounded so that we can be healed. And so I think as we close in today's sermon, as we close in this text, again, it comes back to that question. What kind of gospel, what kind of teaching are we embracing? Are we holding on to this gospel of man, which is about what you have to do and how you're never good enough, and how you have to try and be good enough? Or is, are you going to rest in the faithfulness of Christ? So I think the first thing this text calls us to do is that we must reject the false gospel. We cannot compromise on the truth. And I don't just mean the truth out there. There are plenty of false teachers. There are plenty of false religions. There are plenty of cults that will tell you the work of Christ is not enough, that will lay a burden on you. And yes, that must be exposed, that must be rejected, but we need to reject that lie that's so often inside of here. We need to look at our own lives and ask ourselves, you know, where is our hope placed, Christians? You know, are we hoping in ourselves that maybe one day we're good enough and if we die tomorrow we might be with God? Or is our hope in him? You know, are we defining ourselves with what the world says about us or are we letting the scriptures define us? Are we killing our, our, you know, our sin by our own strength or by the strength of the Holy Spirit? If there is that kind of fruit where it's about you and what you must do, your call is you need to repent of that. You need to reject that and turn instead, embrace the gospel of the true and living God. Again, Christ died for you he has done it all so that we would just know him. And our call isn't to live a life of just having to do, 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 do. Our, life is, our call is to live a life of knowing Christ, walking with him, growing with him, becoming like him as we behold his glory, bearing fruit of the Spirit. And so if we reject the false gospel and we embrace the true gospel, well, that will be good. But it should not stop there, right? There's one more thing we need to do. We need to proclaim that gospel. See, we, we, we are privileged, guys, in that we know the truth. We know the truth of the gospel. We have been set free from the kingdom of darkness. But there are many people trapped. And so our call is to take the news that has transformed us and to go out there and tell the people out there that they need that same Jesus. We must live the gospel and then we must proclaim it, right? Amen? Amen? We're going to go into a time of praise and worship now. As we do, you know, we know the communion is in the back. We know we take that in obedience to Christ, remembering what he has done. We know there's a chance to prayer. We know there's a chance to stand up and sing. But maybe for a moment, let's just sit and rest. And as the scripture says, you know, examine ourselves. If there is anything in us this morning 
that is saying, Jesus, you know, you are not enough. And maybe you're not phrasing it that way, but maybe you're phrasing it as something, Jesus, I have to do. Just bring that to the cross of Christ. Behold the beauty of Christ. Look to the old rugged cross as the song goes. And turn it around. Because God is faithful, he will do it. He will cleanse your conscience. He will wash you white as snow. He will remind you of his goodness and his grace. So let's pray. Father, Lord, God, so often, Lord, I forget the goodness of your gospel. Lord, so often I am prone to wander away, Jesus, from the cross. Lord, from your finished work. God, very quick to condemn myself when you faced condemnation for me. Forgetting your goodness and your grace, Jesus. And Lord, I know I'm not alone in that, God. So often, Lord, we listen to the lies our flesh tells us. We listen to the lies of the enemy, the lies of this world, God, that you are not enough, Jesus. God, as we worship you, as we sit and just think about who you are and what you have done for us, Jesus, may we be reminded, Lord, that you are enough. God, that you have done it all. That, Lord, you know, if we have you and nothing else, God, we have absolutely everything. God, help us not only to embrace that gospel, Lord, but to live it out, God. Lord, there is a city, there is a nation, there is a world that is in need of the righteousness that comes through Christ. And Lord, you have called us, God, to be your messengers, to be your ambassadors, to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom. Lord, would you please give us uh, your heart for the lost? Give us hearts of compassion that want to see sinners saved and brought into the fold of God. As we worship you now, Lord, Holy Spirit, we ask that you would just work in us, that you would bring us to repentance and restoration, that you would build us up, Lord God, and send us out for your glory. We love you, Lord. We thank you for the grace that we have in you, Jesus. We thank you for uh, that we can stand justified, clean because of your blood. And so we praise you in your name. Amen.